0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Gunta Smichens about his recent book, The Power of Song, Nonviolent National Culture in the Baltic Singing Revolution, published by University Washington Press. In the late 1980s, the Baltic Soviet Socialist Republic seemed to explode into song as Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian national movements challenged Soviet rule. The leaders of each of these movements espouse nonviolent principles, but the capacity for violence was always there, especially as Soviet authorities engaged in violent actions. In The Power of Song, Gunther Smitschens tackles the question of whether it is possible to reconcile nonviolent principles with the pursuit of nationalist power, and his answer is yes. As evidence, Smitschens presents the events of 1988 to 1991 in the Baltic countries, and the songs themselves, considering them through the lens of principles of nonviolence. Smitchens not only analyzes the role of choral, folk, and rock music in the national movements, he also provides English translations of over 100 Lithuanian, Latvian, and Estonian songs, setting them in their historical, cultural, and poetic contexts. The Power of Song explains why Latvians, Estonians, and Lithuanians chose music as their weapon of choice to Regain Independence from the Soviet Union. Welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Guntas.
1: Hello, thank you.
0: Great. Well, I'm very excited to talk about your book today, and um, I remember watching uh, fil- uh, news footage of the Baltic singing revolutions and of course have spent time in all three countries. So I was particularly interested to read your book and um, from a folklore perspective. So can you tell us more about what a folklorist does and how you became interested in this field?
1: Well, folklorists study oral traditions, the unofficial uh, shared culture that people have, traditional culture. My uh, interest in folklore combined with my interest in the Baltic countries it was sometime in the early 80s I was going through my brother-in-law's record collection, LP record collection. And I stumbled across a record of Estonian folk songs. And I put it on and I listened to it. And something happened and I said, I want to learn the Estonian language. I want to learn about these songs. And uh, then everything else is history. I went to Indiana University where I could do both, study folklore and study uh, Estonian language.
0: And you are unusual as a scholar because you speak all three languages, Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian. So congratulations on that. And um, so for listeners who aren't familiar with the Baltic countries of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, can you give us just a brief overview and explain why they're often considered as a set, a trio of countries?
1: They're called Baltic because they're by the Baltic Sea, and, and uh, that name goes back about 150 or so years. Uh, it included, sometimes has included Finland and Poland, too. Uh, after the First World War, and especially after the Second World War, uh, people talking about the Baltic countries generally were talking about Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They're uh, countries in Northern Europe, up to very recently parts of other large empires. Uh, Russian Empire, the Swedish Empire, the uh, Poland and Lithuania were were the same country for a long time. Uh, they, the people of these countries, Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, were serfs for for a long time in history. Meaning they were something like slaves in the United States. Uh, no school, uh, no no uh, chance for moving up up in, on the social ladder. Uh, the serfs were liberated in the eighteen hundreds started going to school and started fighting for the cultural rights of their their native languages. And that's where the national movements of Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians began in the Mm mid-1800s.
0: And we'll actually come back um, to that in a few minutes. But before uh, we do, I wanted to talk um, about the source materials that you use in this book. And you present full text translations of over 100 songs choral music, rock music, folk songs in this book. So rather than just excerpting them, you're, you're giving us the full English translation. So why was it important to you to have the whole song rather than just an excerpt? And as you were translating these songs from the three different languages, what were your guiding principles?
1: So as I traveled to Estonia, Lithuania, people kept telling me that to understand them from the inside, from the heart, I would have to understand them singing and to understand them singing i would have to understand their songs too and that's a starting point that to help other people meet estonians latvians lithuanians from from their from their insider's point of view i'd have to somehow try to translate those those songs into english which is my my language of education uh when they sing their songs they often sing for, for a long time, seven, eight, nine stanzas go on. Somehow an English speaker needs to have the patience or the, the, the understanding to listen to the whole song, to experience the song as an Estonian would experience when they sing it. And that's, that was the reason I decided not to have excerpts of songs, but to have the entire song and try to explain it well enough that people could read it and still feel something that an Estonian feels when they're singing it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real challenge. And obviously in a written um, format of a book to be able to capture the, not just the text of the words, but how people feel that song and interpret that song and hear that song. So I noticed that you also um, have, you have a lot of interviews um, and transcripts of interviews or transcripts of events um, and, so that people get a sense of what was happening. Um, and so how did you think about kind of combining that, your analysis and, and, and narrative of the text and then transcripts of events and songs? It's like it was really useful to get all of that together, but I imagine that um, um, took a lot of thought in, in putting the book together. Yeah.
1: So this was, this was in the late 80s when I was searching for a dissertation topic. And at that time, I was very interested in old, archaic, folklore. Uh, my advisor, Linda Degg, said I should be studying living people today. If I'm interested in singing traditions, I should study the sing- living singing traditions. And the singing tradition, a singing revolution was breaking out in the Baltic, and that's why I, I went there. It's, uh, it was a massive movement, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people moving towards freedom and liberty. How to describe them, uh, it, uh, it, there's, you need methods, you need methodological approaches to describe them uh, folklorist always likes to describe people from inside the way they are experiencing things and so uh interviews participant observation when they're singing to be there while they're singing and to describe what I see what I think they they are experiencing I had to be there for that but then also uh, instead of me talking about them singing I would uh, the the perfect goal would be to have themselves have them themselves talk about themselves to present their story uh, uh, in their own words and my job would be to kind of broker between them people who are very interesting to me and there, there are many English speakers who are interested in them and I can be the person who interprets and translates between the two cultures but they were singing hundreds and hundreds of songs from 1988 to 1991. And how would I choose which songs are the representative ones? Uh, The starting point for that was to let them choose. This was in 1998 when the Smithsonian Institution decided to to, uh, celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the Baltic Singing Revolution, invited 50 people from Lithuania, 50 from Latvia, 50 from Estonia, to come to the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. Uh, they did many things. That, that they had uh, many performances of all kinds of traditions. But the culmination there was on the 4th of July, on the National Mall, uh, the three Baltic nations, their self-selected representatives, had an hour and a half to tell Americans about their singing revolution. And so this is the, a perfect occasion for a folklorist. Now, I, I would help them uh, translate what they are saying into English, help them speak to the American people, help them tell their story in their own words and in their own songs. I had the good luck of being there on the stage in 1998, I was the interpreter, uh, not, always, uh, not always translating perfectly what they were saying. And so this uh, the first chapter of the book is a transcript of, of what they were actually saying, what they were singing there. Sixteen songs, and those songs to them at that moment represented everything that had happened 10 years earlier in the Baltic countries.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, before we um, continue with that, let's jump back to the um, eight, the 19th century in the um, mid-1800s. And like most parts of Eastern Europe, this, um, this national culture and, and beginning to identify national cultures and folk cultures um, was tied to the person of Herder. So can you talk about his role on, um, in collecting Baltic folk songs and this um, kind of discovery of, a, of a Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian cultures?
1: Yeah, Johann Gottfried Herder, he passed away in 1803, so he's uh, uh, right at the turn of the 19th century, is the person who invented the word folk song. Volkslied in German, we translate that into English as folk song. He's the person who discovered oral poetry, And actually, his mission is one that I hold as a model for myself. He uh, said, all over the world, there are people singing, expressing what it is to be in their cultures. And all we need to have a picture of humanity is to collect all the songs of all the people in the world, to explain them, put them in a book, and a person reading a book will experience what all humankind is experiencing. Herders inspiration came. He was a 20-year-old young man in Riga, which is today the capital city of Latvia. Uh, And he happened to see a midsummer celebration there in the countryside and saw people uh, singing in a language he couldn't understand. He he knew it was poetry because it was rhythmic, it was melodic. And being so intrigued with this idea that people have poetry that's not written, uh, no university teaches that kind of literature, to study it, to collect it, to 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 uh, uh, he felt that human expression was coming from the very core of human expression in, in these songs, and to, to study them, compile them, translate and explain them, that would be the key to understanding all the mission of all humankind. Uh, so, so he uh, he had acquaintances in this who knew Estonians and Latvians and Lithuanians, collect songs from them, help uh, translate them, like basic translations into German, Herder wrote in German, and then he recomposed those songs, re-put re, uh, them into German poetry. And this is his discovery of, of, folk poetry came through his discovery of, of Baltic poetry, uh, of Baltic oral poetry. Uh, because he had, published in his book, Folks Leader, the songs of Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, who were at that time seen as serfs, as uneducated, uncultured people. Uh, This later, when these people started going to school and to universities, became something of national pride that the great philosopher of of humankind, Johann Gottfried Herder, had discovered their oral poetry, had argued that they have culture at a time when the local Germans and others were saying that these are... Uh, uncultured, uncivilized people had said that these are humans and so it was very natural that folk poetry became their uh, a core symbol of their national identity. People, Estonians went out to the countryside to collect folk songs uh, set them to music or 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 arranged the melodies to be sung by choirs and whenever Latvians or Lithuanians or Estonians gathered uh, the, uh, singing together was one of the ways that they uh, said, well, we do have culture. People tell us we do not have culture. We are not um, uh, modern Europeans, but here we have these unique poetry, these unique songs, unique culture that, that makes us uh, equal to all other cultured nations of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And I I thought it was interesting that you said by the beginning of the 20th century that Latvians, Estonians, and Lithuanians each saw themselves as a nation of singers. So as they um, gained independence, became independent nation states after World War One, that this was really central to their identity. So can you talk more about the song festivals and how they became formalized and also what role singing played? And why it was, you've already talked a little bit, but why in particular then as they were establishing these interwar nation states was singing something that received so much, um, I guess, institutional support?
1: So in the mid-1800s, uh, singing in choirs was a kind of pop music, a popular music all over Europe. And in the Baltic region where Germans were one of the dominant ethnic groups, one of the Uh, with people with political power, with economic power. So in the cities, Germans were singing their choirs. uh, And and Estonian got the idea that Estonians could prove that they're equal to Germans by having their own choirs. German choirs were coming together in in Estonian cities to sing together in larger choirs. And so the idea came about that if all Estonian choirs from all over the Estonian-speaking territories, there was no Estonia. at at that time, this was just some provinces of the Russian Empire. If all the choirs could come together and sing together on stage, this would be uh, building a kind of national culture, building building a nation, proving again that Estonians have culture. Uh, Latvians did the same thing, Latvians from different, different provinces, again coming together, singing together in Riga on the stage. It's, it's nation building and it's nation building that you can actually experience because you meet people who speak your, own, your same language, sing the same songs, and when a choir of 800 singers is singing together on stage, a feeling of power starts to emerge and the feeling of uh, where people have been telling you that Latvian is a language of farmers and, and, and it's good for milking cows and chucking manure out of the barn, but it's not a language of culture. To have a massive choir of a thousand singers on stage singing four part harmonies very difficult harmonies was an expression of pride it was the only expression of pride that was available to them at that time they didn't have economic power no political power but uh coming together to show they have culture gave them an awareness that there are other people like them and that they can accomplish great things together with their their people mm-hmm. And the, the- in,
0: in, in terms of the interwar states, um, it, I got the impression that there was a lot of um, gover- not not just coming up from the people, but also more institutional or governmental support for these um, song festivals as um, as a part of building a new nation state. not Once they had political entities,
1: yes, yeah, Lithuania would be the biggest example of this. Up until World War One, or a little shortly before World War One. Lithuanian language books were banned in the Russian Empire. Lithuanian, the print, print Lithuanian language was banned. Um, choirs singing outside of church were not allowed. Uh, and so, when Lithuanians, remembering the medieval period when Lithuania was independent, established an independent Lithuania again in 1918, then they went about building things that every country of Europe had: a public school public education system uh, and in the schools there was a curriculum and in the curriculum there will be of course music and and songs uh, this this is a big uh, same things happening in Estonia and Latvia that that uh, when these countries became independent for the first time establishing public schools establishing public culture then that culture was in the Estonian language, Lithuanian language and Latvian language song festivals were part of this so the largest song festivals now with, with uh, government support happened the, and uh, the, the song festival tradition grew to the, in the 1920s and 1930s to, to, to proportions that, that uh, were much larger than than had been possible when it was all purely amateur interest back in the 1800s uh, governments have always liked to support Song festivals. I think the Tsar of Russia liked to see uh, ten thousand Estonians on stage singing the national anthem of Russia. Glory, glory to the Russian Tsar, for example. So th- there's this balance of, of of people singing some songs for the the government that that's there and singing other songs simply that they want to be singing. When the countries were independent, uh, uh, the 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 governments of these three countries definitely saw song festivals as a way of building national unity, building uh, national pride and national patriotism. Mm-hmm. In Lithuania, for various reasons, uh, by 1930, there was uh, political conflict in the country uh, and and the song festival tradition died away for a while. It was, there were attempts to revive it towards the end of the 30s. They might have again had national song festivals, but uh, without some sort of Political consensus, some sort of uh, feeling of ownership or public ownership of the country. Uh, song festivals couldn't be couldn't grow where where they were in Estonia and Latvia, for example.
0: Hmm. And then, in during World War II, uh, the Soviet Union occupied and then annexed um, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, turning them into the Baltic republics of the Soviet Union. And song festivals continued. That the the Soviet um, Governments continued to uh, use these uh, song festivals as a way, as you said, of uh, governments um, using them to to promote their own ideologies and identities. And so now this were in the hands of of uh, the Soviets. But how did um, Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians view and participate in these uh, Soviet song festivals um, that were also drawing, but not? Um, um, privileging their uh, national traditions. Yeah.
1: This, the, the Soviet period is where my book, the core of my book, actually begins. The earlier traditions had built up uh, choral singing abilities. Uh, the earlier traditions had uh, uh, composers had been composing songs for these large choirs, and choral music was a very popular form of art in the three countries. Uh, its political meaning that we see emerging in the singing revolution uh, grew out in the in the Soviet period. So when Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin occupied the Baltic, there was a two-pronged uh, kind of political uh, um, policy in the Baltic. First, there was uh, was uh, government violence. People who opposed the country would be deported. People who might oppose the country were deported, were arrested. Uh, um, the partisan war continued after World War II. Lithuanians, in particular, went by tens of thousands in the forests and continued a military struggle for independence from the Soviet Union for, for eight years after World War II. Uh, so subjugating these people, stopping, stopping outright uh, opposition was one prong of the Soviet government's control of the Baltic countries. The other one is to, was to control their hearts and minds, uh, and that was to continue the Song Festival tradition. Uh, but in a different frame, to have them singing Soviet songs of patriotism, songs of loving Stalin, Soviet songs of loving the Communist Party, and so on. Uh, I haven't figured out what what idea was behind this uh, government cultural policy. There's two interpretations. One is Joseph Stalin was a Pavlov psychology uh, follower, and I, I think that he might have thought that if he can force people long enough to be singing songs of love for himself and for the Soviet Union, that they would eventually start to love him too and, and to feel happy to be, to be under Soviet power. Uh, another interpretation is that public culture in the Soviet Union, especially under Joseph Stalin, was a culture of public submission, that people would stand on stage, uh, say loyal things to the Soviet Union, and, there, and in that way show other people around them that they were no longer resisting Soviet power. Uh, Both interpretations work for what the government policy was under the Soviets. Uh, uh, Neither one worked the way it was intended. Neither one turned Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians into loyal citizens of the communist state and the government of the Soviet Union. Uh, What happened at these song festivals, from the very start, and this is from memoirs and it's also we, we have documentation of what was happening in the song festivals. Was that, so Estonian choirs would say, yes, let's do a national song festival. And of course we will sing these loyal songs, loyal communist songs, at the beginning and at the end. But in between we'll sing songs that we want to sing. And this happened in Estonia, it happened in Latvia too happened in lithuania that uh it's the only way i can explain why tens of thousands of people would be coming and singing songs of loving joseph stalin at the very same time that their relatives were if they were partisans were being killed in the forest by stalin's troops or their other relatives had just been deported to siberia why would people be singing this kind of songs of submission uh to soviet power uh it's People use the the expression "Give to Caesar what's due to Caesar." They would give the official songs, and then they would sing their own songs, uh, feeling that unity, feeling something other than being Soviets. And then audiences responded to this too. That a choir would sing a song that's it's not anti-Soviet, which is which is the wrong way to understand that the balls were anti-Soviet. They would sing a song about uh, sailing across the sea to get married. And I now can marry, I'm, I'm old enough to get married, I'm independent. And then the audience, this is a Latvian song uh, about the wind, blowing, low wind. And the audience would start clapping, and nobody knows who starts clapping. They just keep clapping and clapping until the encore comes. Uh, similar things, the unofficial anthems are emerging in Estonia, in Lithuania too, that this kind of anonymous, mass understanding that we will ask for encores of the songs we love, and nobody can be caught and nobody can be uh, uh, put into prison for just clapping and liking the song that's there on stage, Uh, that the unofficial anthems emerged. And by the 60s, a choir is singing a song that explicitly is nothing anti-Soviet. Explicitly it might be related to loving one's country. might be other things. And the audience is standing, 15,000, 20,000 singers on stage, 100,000 people, hundred fifty thousand people in the audience, all of them standing, all of them singing in four-part harmony, all of them understanding without ever saying it explicitly that they are something other than Soviets. They are not the. It's not. This is not a Soviet flag, uh, a Soviet event, Soviet patriotism event. Even though there are red flags surrounding it and there's communist slogans pasted all over the all over the stage, we're singing uh, ourselves. And we are our own people would be what's happening there.
0: Mm -hmm. And then um, come the 1980s and the song festivals were a site in which the um, national uh, feelings and the national movements really started to first appear. I think that the um, first um, display of national flags um, occurred at song festivals and starting to sing songs that had been, um, that were, if if not outright forbidden, were frowned upon. So um, just tell us what was happening in the 80s at these song festivals that was part of this coalescing of, of what started out as um, reform movements under uh, Gorbachev's um, perestroika and glasnost and then really blossomed into these national independence movements.
1: Yes, the so 19... 19- Eighty-five is where Glasnost, or public speech, begins in the Soviet Union. The Gorbachev's goal, of course, was public speech to make the Soviet Union a stronger, uh, a stronger country. That was his intent. He was not intending for people to start speaking about uh, other o- other options besides being in the Soviet Union. This is where the vaults broke out. I wanted to mention that uh, singing traditions had branched out, they're kind of branching out into three directions, which are always intertwining uh, during the late, uh, during the 60s, 70s, and especially in the 80s. People are not saying that, well, people are singing in the rock style, in the folk style, in the choral style, Uh, and all of these are singing styles, so so when people are using singing as a way of being outside of the Soviet Union, of, of not participating in official Soviet culture, it can happen in rock music and in folk music revival. It can happen also, as I mentioned, on, on the choir, the choir singing on stage. And so the one thing that was there during the Soviet, I was I mentioned the unofficial anthems. One thing that remains when we look at the films of those unofficial anthems is that the films still are framed in red flags. In the background, you can see the communist slogans. Uh, it takes some real gymnastics to argue that these people singing under the red flags are actually not doing Soviet patriotism. And uh, the singers themselves felt that contradiction. 1988 is the moment when singers uh, come out of the closet and say, we are not singing. We, we refuse to sing with any kind of Soviet symbols around us. So it was at a rock concert in the spring of 1988 in Estonia when, when, uh, uh a rock band was playing on stage, in the audience, two people suddenly lifted out an illegal flag, the blue, black, and white flag of independent Estonia. This is at a time when other people who are raising that flag are being arrested still in Estonia. But the crowd is so big and so tight, uh, nobody can get to them through the crowd. The television editors edited them out of the broadcasts that day, but the, the, the news spread through the oral tradition, that, that flags had been had appeared at a concert and the people had not been arrested who had those flags. And the next day already you have blue, black, and white flags all over Estonia. Not just flags, but people are, people are wearing blue, black, and white clothes. It was a visual symbol of recognition, which is non-vi- nonviolent political. Tacticians talk about this, that everybody knew who was in the movement because they were carrying the colors that were not the Soviet colors. A similar thing happened in Lithuania. A choir was... This was now a choir of Estonian Lithuanian University students singing Lithuania in July of 1988 Uh, uh, and among them on stage, suddenly somebody pulls out flags that they had hidden the three, blue, black, white Lithuania's flag is red, green and gold, and Latvia's is red, white, red all three flags appear in the middle of the choir, the police well, they're, they're called militia, but the police are kind of moving towards the choir to take away the Flags, But the choir singers have kind of clustered together closer and closer so that the police would have to kind of squeeze and break their way through the entire choir on national television in front of the whole audience. And so basically they, they gave up and allowed those flags. And then the, the procession, the, like a parade after the concert, and the flags had come out of the, out of the closet in Lithuania too. And Latvia, similar thing, on a, on a, at a folklore festival, on stage people took They had hidden under their folk costumes, they had hidden the three flags, and again went out on stage. There's a very high-level communist official sitting in the audience, and under their noses now these people take out the flags of independence, the three Baltic countries, declaring very visually, but also in words, that we are not Soviet, we are independent people. The communist official stood up and walked out of that out of that concert, and the singers, then, after that concert, there was a procession, and the procession walked down the, through the streets of Riga. The official pro- procession started with red flags. But right behind those red flags were the people with the independent flags. They kind of stopped, and the red flags didn't look back and kept walking a little further. There was, like, a gap between the flags. The red flags looked back and catch up. They weren't catching up. So what the, what the audience of that parade saw was a little island of red flags Walking down the street, and nobody's looking at them because they see the beginning of the real parade, the real procession with uh, now thousands and thousands of singers carrying independence flags. And so, so singing came out, came out, and said, "This has always been the meaning of our singing, and we will, we will always have visual symbols of of uh, singing surrounded by ind- independent flags to declare who we are, both visually and in songs."
0: Mm-hmm and i that's actually a great um place to transition because the in the title of your book you talk about nonviolent national culture and we've been talking about national culture so i'd like to bring in the nonviolent um uh, part now and you've mentioned that already so why uh what drew you to um the study of the principles of nonviolence and and why um Did you decide to start looking at um, these events and this um, the this power of song through the principles of nonviolence?
1: Folklorists analyze songs; uh, they kind of break it down to three things: talking about song contexts, contexts who and where and what situations people are singing in, and what are they saying about the songs while they're singing. There's text, and there's also the texture of songs that folklorists look at Uh, in the context. Very explicitly, people were carrying flags, saying we are fighting for our nations, but the speakers at these events would always also be talking about nonviolence. The Estonian Singing Revolution, after one of these first mass concerts that I mentioned, in in Tallinn, a journalist went home, the story is he drank his morning coffee and wrote an editorial titled Singing Revolution, Heinz Valk is his name, Uh, where he said, I'm very proud to be part of this nation. Uh, that when it makes its revolution, does it by singing and smiling. A singing and smiling nation, a nation that makes its revolution by singing and smiling is a sublime example to the world. Uh, So this feeling of of a mission to fight for your people, but to do it nonviolently, was there from the very beginning. Uh, the speaker at 1988 at the Latvian Popular Front, which was a non-formal organization, national organization, said, as long as they were calling it a revolution, it was going to be overturning the Soviet power in their countries, which, which was their goal. As long as our revolution is a revolution of flowers and songs, because people were carrying flowers too, uh, we will succeed. And somewhere in that, he's saying, no matter how long it takes, this is like a saying in Estonia too. Uh, that same journalist, he would give a speech and he would say, "One day we will be, we will win, uh, no matter what, uh, and, and, and it might take a long, long time. We have the patience. We will outlast our adversary." Similar, similar rhetoric around songs happening, very explicitly saying, "Our movement is nonviolent. We reject guns. We reject weapons as a way of fighting." And the movement grew. The what this did was it created a very disciplined mass movement that every person who was present and listened to those speakers speaking and understood what they were saying, understood two things. Number one, Estonians don't have a chance if they want to fight with guns against Soviet power, 150 million soldiers, well-armed, they're going to lose anyways. But uh, more importantly, that the nonviolent struggle is the, the best way to win this battle. Because in a nonviolent struggle, you work with your adversary's conscience. You don't threaten them. You smile. You sing. You do beautiful art. And somewhere, Gandhi, Gandhi in India discovered this. In South Africa, somewhere, your adversary suddenly starts feeling pains of pangs of conscience and says, "I can't be shooting at these people who are not armed and are not presenting any threat." And so, in each of the three Baltic countries thanks to a very well-organized movement, thanks to people who were speaking that this is our movement, uh, the people who would have a violent tendency were pushed to the margins and pushed out of the movement. And this is critical, because every time you have a mass movement, all you need is a few planted people who start throwing rocks or start doing violent things, and and, and the whole mass movement can be portrayed as a violent movement and the government can crack down violently on that movement. So the discipline of the Balts from 1988 through 1991 uh, in maintaining nonviolence as their only tactic, as the one tactic, if you are Estonian fighting for Estonia, you will not do any violence, was understood by masses. I can only explain that by the culture of choirs. In all three countries, choirs from all over the countries had been coming together uh, showing who they are, expressing their identity in art, and beautiful, and they understood a choir has to be very disciplined. A choir doesn't obey their conductor. A choir is lots of individuals singing with their conductor, but they're all very disciplined. They all know that for this to work, they all have to be in harmony. That's, that's how the singing revolution succeeded, that three entire nations feeling national identity understood that their national mission is to be nonviolent. That's the way that they're going to win the struggle. That's where, that's where they went into the history of world history of nonviolence, too. Uh, three very small nations, small, I guess they're small, they're larger than many other nations. A million, roughly, Estonians, a million and a half, two million, let's say, Latvians, two and a half, three, three and a half million Lithuanians are not supposed to win a struggle for independence nonviolently, but they did. And this is where... Uh, Today's nonviolent political activists can point to the Baltic and say the impossible happened there. I was was trying to put a frame of nonviolent theory or nonviolent tactics around the Baltic. And I could see them doing nonviolent politics, nonviolent political action. It all worked very well. The problem I ran into was when I wanted to uh, merge songs into the analysis and singing. So I'm reading studies of nonviolent political action, histories of civil rights movement, histories of India, uh, uh, Gandhi's movement, uh, you name it. And when they mention songs and singing, they usually mention it in one paragraph, a couple of sentences, and goes on to the tactics of the movement or the, or the philosophy of the leaders of the movement. Sometimes memoirs of, of very dramatic events where there happened to be singing, uh, my, my, um, but singing itself is not studied. My, my classic example is, so there's, there's a, a classic kind of history of nonviolent political action in the 20th century, a force more powerful. And in the index, you find a list of all kinds of things, uh, ahimsa, voting, strikes, all kinds of things that nonviolent people can do, but songs and singing are not in the index. And so I had to do this case study so that if future People are thinking about how what role songs can play in a nonviolent movement. They would have one case study of all kinds of singing that built into a nonviolent movement. They, were, they were, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: I was just going to say one of the things that I thought was interesting in the book is that you actually argue against the distinction between the um, singing part of the revolution and the parliamentary tactics part. That you say that that should, that the these singing revolutions, that that this transition to being able to use parliamentary tactics and, and implementing those was not a separate phase, but that that's all linked together, that that's part of this approach, this nonviolent approach.
1: Yes. The historians focus on governments that were elected in 1991. I want to point out that voting is a form of nonviolent political action. 1990 was the first time that Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians had that option. Uh, the first time that they had an election in the Soviet Union where they could choose between two candidates. It was very simple the candidate who wants to preserve the Soviet Union and the candidate who wants to uh, establish independence for that country. They voted in the governments that declared independence in the spring of 1990. And this is where the countries are actually independent. Their, their struggle for independence continued until 1991, but they began acting independent already in 1990. Now, uh, focusing on those parliaments that are doing negotiations with Moscow, uh, finding allies outside of the Soviet Union is very important. But when we look at those three parliaments, the three national parliaments and governments of the three independent countries in 1991, we notice that there's tens and hundreds of thousands of unarmed civilians standing around those parliaments when the tanks began rolling in the streets and the soldiers with guns started uh, uh, started trying to bring Soviet control over the situation. An argument I have is that without these civilian defenders, large numbers of people that would have to be somehow crushed, physically crushed, in order to close down the parliaments, without those civilian defenders defending the parliament, free speech through television, through printing presses... Uh, the independence movements could have, gone, could have been stopped much more easily. And so to explain the success, we have to explain the massive movements of nonviolence and to explain where each individual who decided, even when people were being killed, to simply go and join and stand around that parliament of their country, the government of their country, uh, where did they get the motivation to defend Independence and freedom. Uh, it all it all comes down to singing, I think, it's, 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 it's where it comes from.
0: And but you do acknowledge that all of the song the songs themselves are not always um, you might say nonviolent. That there are a lot of songs that are songs drawing on um, uh, war imagery and battle imagery. So, what was the relationship between these these songs that are drawing on um, the violence of war in a movement that is really focused on nonviolence.
1: This was a paradox that I had to somehow engage. How could people be doing non-violent political, nonviolent political action? And a core kind of song that they were singing, especially in Latvia and in Lithuania, was soldiers' songs, the songs of those same guerrilla warriors, guerrilla partisans that were fighting in the forests in the 1940s, 1950s. Those same songs about fighting and dying for your country were being sung in 1991, 1990, 1989 in the Baltic countries. How can you have violent songs that are somehow the core of a non-violent, the engine of a non-violent movement? Uh, It's a difference between, say, the American Civil Rights Movement, where you can compile books books of songs that are all explicitly saying we have non-violent ideology, The the songs that are not usually compiled in those American civil rights songs are are Christian Baptist hymns, which I think were part of the engine that ran that movement. In the Baltic countries, now we would compile what what are the main songs that are giving people power. they are soldiers fighting, but when I started looking at the text, it was often soldiers who are willing to die for their country was a theme that was there. And this is an overlap now with soldiers who are bravely fighting for their country with arms in their hands and unarmed civilians defending their independence uh, that both need lots and lots of bravery. And there's something in these songs that gives them bravery. It's, part of it will be the historical texts. People remember partisans who, who died Two generations earlier, fighting for independence, and they're singing the same songs, uh, mustering the same desperate bravery, the same confidence that their 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 struggle has meaning by singing those same songs. That's that's part of the way of analyzing the text. Uh, but then there's lots of texts that are not political at all. I mean, a a, a key moment in Estonia was when us uh uh. Conductor came on stage and, let's sing the, and said, Let's sing this children's song. And so now 100,000 people are singing a children's song, a silly little children's song together. No politics in that. We're somehow very accustomed to wanting to uh, see in the text of songs the meaning of the whole movement. And if I look at the text of songs that people were singing, there's patriotism, there's independence, there's bravery, there's military struggle also, there's love songs, there's children's songs there's songs about nature, all kinds of songs which somehow doesn't, don't make sense, except if you say that, don't look at the songs, only you have to look at the singing, as, at what, made, what powered the movement. This is uh, one of my teachers who told me uh, that the performance is as important as the words that people are performing, because when they are singing, uh, the singing itself has meaning. Baltz had been identifying in speeches that songs are their weapons. Uh, they could sing any song, and the song, they would understand that it's their weapon. And so shifting from just, from studying contexts of songs, where people are talking about songs and doing things while they're singing, uh, to studying the texts, and it was incomplete without studying the textures, the form of singing, and what that does to a singer. This is where I... Uh, I uh, brought in, I started reading scholarship that I'd never read before. These are uh, singers, the artists who do singing professionally, you know, train other singers. And they're describing things that suddenly made these mass movements make sense. They're saying, a singer uh, who sings well opens up their hearts it puts their like their whole soul it's very vulnerable you are very vulnerable when you're singing well as an artist uh because you have exposed your inside, inner heart to everybody around you when you're singing together you're sharing that with many people so a feeling of love emerges out of singing when people are singing together this is what was happening in the movement too that strangers singing the same songs uh were singing from the heart and the the emotional core of the movement, this feeling that we are all together and we all understand the same thing, was coming from the, coming through the singing. Another thing is uh, singing and self-esteem. Uh, that singing researchers definitely know that a performer who has personal problems in their life uh, can't perform well. heal the heal the person first, and then the voice will heal itself. Is the is the uh, is the understanding. So thing, singing is a kind of Kind of therapy. And I think that singing also gave people the therapy of overcoming the trauma of very violent Soviet rule together. And it gave them that feeling of it's hard to explain what self-esteem is. But when you sing loudly and beautifully with lots and lots of other people, you gain individual self-esteem too. The singers tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, One of the first things that nonviolent tacticians say is the way totalitarian governments control their individual um, subjects is by drumming in a feeling of of inferiority into every individual. When an individual suddenly feels the individual power of some kind, that power comes from singing loudly in your own voice. It's so much harder to subjugate them. I think that, that, that it was actually the singing that gave every individual in those masses of people. They were not a mass of non-individual people. Every individual felt that self-esteem, felt unity and love. And that's what powered the movement. Then, then when um, in Lithuania the head of the Speaker of Parliament came out and said, there are those people over there, another group of people that were probably preparing to attack the Parliament. Don't look at them. Leave the violence to them. This is not our way. Just look at each other. Look in each other's eyes. Cluster closer together and sing whatever you sing. You, know, you can sing hymns. You can sing patriotic songs. You can sing love songs. Sing anything, and will be more powerful than they are. Uh, singing was what gave them power. It's uh, power to persist and, and defend their independence. That's my mm-hmm. interpretation. I think. I think. I think I'm onto something because I see other singing yeah. movements getting individual power and then group power, people power through seeing
0: too. Mm-hmm. And you in the book, you refer to a scene from the, um, a film about the Estonian uh, national movement, uh, the singing revolution, in which their um, interfront, uh, have a group of um, members of the interfront um, group that was opposed to uh, um, Estonian independence have gotten into Tumpea the, um, in the parliament building, and then the masses of people come out to protect the parliament and they're stuck inside. And and it's such a powerful scene where um, the the leaders come out of the building and say to everyone, we want you to to open a path and let these men out and we don't want you to harm them that, you know, they were trying to do violence and we're not going to do violence against them. And, um, and just that scene of the square full of Estonians um, making a path for the members of the Interfront group that had been trying to um, do some kind of action against the parliament building and they're singing. And, um, and you know that that was a moment that could have exploded into violence. But as you said, that discipline of, of not just the leaders espousing the nonviolent principles, but people actually having the discipline to listen to that and, and using singing as a way of kind of, making that moment a disciplined, nonviolent moment. It's a really powerful scene.
1: Yeah, nonviolence gets very difficult once your adversary is uh, inflicting violence on you. In Estonia, it was relatively mild. What this mob Mm -hmm. of people did was they broke down the gates of the parliament, uh, kind of stormed in, tore down the blue, black, white flags, put up red flags. And then they suddenly realized they don't have anything else to say or do because they've done it and nobody has hit them. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and there's the and then one side.
1: Yeah. Who then understood that even though these people are doing violence, control yourself, show them that your your people power is much greater than theirs.
0: Yeah. And I think this, you know, this uh, idea of nonviolence, um you know, there's also the um documentary film uh that has the that shows the um at the Lithuanian parliament building and it it's in some ways, there's there's a difference, I think, between when you're it's really clear that violence isn't going to work because these people have tanks and you do not. But what I think is so powerful about that scene in Tallinn is that the the Estonians had the capacity to do violence without being um, shot because these members of Interfront, you know, were this was not a you know, they they didn't have big guns they didn't have tanks and so if the estonians had decided to you know beat them up outside the parliament building there was no way they could have inflicted you know major damage and so in a in a sense it seems that that took as much discipline as standing in front of a tank because it's still saying even though we could easily use violence now and right now we wouldn't have an immediate impact although there could have potentially been reprisals they still chose not to engage in violence. But I want to um, just... Um,
1: it intensifies. Uh, it intensifies.
0: Yes. In yeah.
1: Latvia when civilians were killed by Soviet yes. troops. Urge yes. to revenge is a really yes, powerful... Thing. exactly. And calming that urge was was part of the movement too.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I just want to talk briefly about um, folk music and rock music because we've talked a lot about choral music, but you did refer to both of those and you you have a whole chapter on each. Um And one of the questions that I had going into the chapter on folk music, which is what is really the difference between the folk music and the choral music, because folk music i mean choral music grew out of folk songs, but the folk the folk music as a tradition um, you separate that from choral music so how how is folk music different from choral music, and what did it contribute that was different from choral music?
1: Both of them are very different from rock music. In rock music,
0: yes,
1: of course. A, a poet can write a song, uh, practice it a couple of times, perform it on radio, and suddenly a million people in the country know the song. This is So the rock musicians could respond very quickly to things happening every day. Choirs need a composer and lots of rehearsals, and it takes weeks if not months to uh, for a song to spread. Where folk, folk music is different is that folk music doesn't really require anybody to know the words folk music often is called response where say one person or a small group of people know, know the words and they sing a line and everybody repeats after them. And then they sing another line and people repeat. And, and so it's possible for many, many people to sing even if they've never heard the song before, if they uh, participate in the folk tradition. And so this, this would be where uh, rock music added ideology to the movement (laughs) Spread the ideology through poetry, choral music spread great mass discipline, and folk music pulled into people who had not been singers before. They found it was very easy. Folk melodies are easy to sing, easy to repeat, uh, easy to participate, easy for large numbers of people to suddenly become singers in public. Through folk music, and that's that would be what where folk music is different from choral music, where you do have to know whether you 're a bass tenor, alto or a soprano. you do have to know how to read the notes in order to sing in harmony uh, and folk singing you don 't need that at all
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and that 's interesting what you said about rock music and the the quickness of the response and also the um, in a way putting the ideology into poetry. When I think of um, the late 1980s in Lithuania, I, I think of the rock band Antis and there's a um, a Lithuanian documentary that basically is Antis kind of going on a rock the vote tour for the um, Supreme Soviet elections, I think in 1990, and, um, and so you have this rock group going out of these Lithuanian villages and... Um, performing their music, um, but then also, you know, talking to people during the day and singing, um, also singing folk songs and singing uh, traditional songs. And, and that was a really interesting um, place to see these rock musicians um, in a movement that has, um, I think most people think of, you know, the, the singers in the national costumes um, singing these very traditional songs. And, and yet rock musicians were very important.
1: Yeah, I hope that movie that you mentioned, How We Played the Revolution, yes. I hope that will soon be available in, here in the United States too for people to see that. Uh, the, the idea of a rock god doesn't work in the Baltic. Uh, the rock singers are very down to earth and singing songs, communicating with people, and, but then using the microphone that they have on stage, using the attention that they've gotten through their very loud music, <laughs> to say the things that unify and that organize And that make people want to be part of the movement, make them believe that the independence candidates can win the election, and then go out, turn out, and vote. That was Mm -hmm. that was definitely the Antis was the band that did that in Lithuania. Mm
0: -hmm. So you asked the question um, whether uh, it's possible to reconcile nonviolent principles with the pursuit of nationalist power. With a yes, why do you think that the Baltic singing revolutions were? able to do this. You talked about the fact that um, the uh, singing itself created discipline and, um, and a sense of individual um, self-esteem and power. Were there other factors that you think made these um, th- these national movements so successful at really integrating nonviolence um, as an important part of their culture and their action? This is
1: where the national culture comes in and the culture that goes back a century or two. Uh, Herder, whom I mentioned, uh, who said songs represent people and songs are the the soul of people, uh, also was writing about how uh, some people are warrior nations and they will have warrior songs about pride and and revenge. Other people are uh, uh, gentle nations and they will have songs of love and so on. Uh, now, whether this is true or not is le- is less important than the fact that the seed was planted already in the late 1700s, that uh, gentle nations can use songs as their expression too. Uh, and that seed really took root that from the very start of the song festival tradition, the explicit rhetoric, both around songs and in songs, also includes nonviolent images. The, the one that I that I choose chose to talk about in the book where I got my book Book's title, The Power of Song, is an 1873, 1873 poem by the Latvian national poet Ausiklis. Uh, he was writing an essay at that time where he said, Our nation will not stain its sword, stain swords with precious human blood. Our weapon is the song. He was writing that in an essay. Then he writes uh, a poem that became a classic in the Latvian choir repertoire about a war that was. The story of the song is. Uh, two nations are going to war against each other. A singer stands up on the fortress ramparts and starts singing, and both of them stop fighting, and the war is over. Uh, the power of song drove away war is the, the, the climax of that song. An 1873 poem sung already in the 1890s. So this uh, Lithuanians are also debating whether Lithuanians are a gentle nation or a warrior nation. Uh, the, the idea that you can be a nation... You can be fighting for your language, for your culture, for your country, and still be against violence was planted from the very beginning in these three, in these three cultures. And so it didn't emerge out of nothing in 1988. It was, they were hearing about Thoreau and Gandhi and King and others. They, that, that certainly was feeding into the movement. But they were also using very powerful symbols that went back a century that were at the very core of their national movements back in the 1800s already, and so that's where it is national culture. It is nonviolent national culture, and that culture is what what uh, emerged and blossomed in 1988 and continued until 1991. And I would I would say that culture is continuing even today in the Baltic too.
0: And this is. Um... I really enjoyed reading the book and of course I've enjoyed talking to you about this book and I'm sure our listeners will um, find this really interesting and um, so I appreciate the time that you gave us uh, today to uh, talk about your work and what are you working on now?
1: Well a sequel to this book I mean the 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 problem of a country fighting a nonviolent battle and then deciding whether it needs a military to defend itself that, that India would be the classic example for that, that uh, nonviolence is not pacifism. Nonviolence is not laying down your weapons and letting an enemy come in and, and just kill you. Nonviolence is a tactic which gives an adversary a choice uh, whether to use violence against the people who are presenting no uh, physical threat to you. And that's certainly what's happening in the Baltic today, that some of the most beautiful choral music in the world is being composed there. If I name some people like Arvo Parrott or velho Tormes or Eriks Eschenwalds, I think some of the listeners will immediately recognize these composers as people whose songs they have sung here in the United States. Amer- American choirs are singing these songs. Uh, songs that are among the most beautiful things that humans can create this is a good reason to not invade and not destroy the song festival cultures of these. On the other hand, they're very well armed They are now well-trained fighting with their allies in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, trained in battle, uh, very prepared to continue uh, if invaded uh, to make the cost very high for their adversaries. So, so, um, the, the choice is there today for any potential adversary of Estonia like Lithuania uh, to fight a very costly war, which in the long run you can't, can't win, or to just let these people do what their national mission is. is to Their national mission is to be with people like them, uh, to create art together, and to contribute to humankind by, by singing and music, and that's, uh, I'm convinced that that's the very core of their national cultures today.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing uh, what comes out of this research project as well. And maybe there'll be another book and we'll have an interview in a few years again. Thanks. But um, Ed, so, again, thank you very much for um, being part of the New Books in East European Studies podcast series. Thanks. And um, and I'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us again for this um, edition of the New Books in East European Studies and our conversation with uh, Gunter Smitschens about his book, The Power of Song, and have a good day.